Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Well, it's a pleasure. I tell you, uh, I can't believe the guy's 70 because he doesn't look like it. Uh, He grew up in uh, Elk Grove, California, the son of a dairy farmer. Scott, you've come a long way since the son of a dairy farmer, young man. Good morning, and thanks for joining us so early out in Southern California. Yeah, it's nice now. I I have to get up at 6 in the morning instead of 3.30. It's wonderful. Were you milking cows as a kid growing up? All the time. That's kind of what you... uh, um, I read the Ted Williams book on hitting, and I'd cut a tire in half, and I nailed it to a post outside the barn. And what we do is we would, uh, you, you put the milk machine on the cow, and you had, a, you know, some minutes where you could go out, take some swings, go back in, change it, put it back on. So that was the daily routine. You know, it's an incredible work ethic to learn, though, Scott. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I've been around a lot of football players, offensive linemen, guys who grew up in Wisconsin or, or in Ohio, and they grew up on dairy farms or worked on dairy farms, whatever it might be, farming in general. I mean, the work ethic you learn, um, whether it's on a family farm, it's, it, it, it's so unique, I think, compared to just about anything else. Would you agree with that? No, I just gave a... Uh commencement speech at my law school and and my father who's 93 um um, got to come and and i I thanked him for the what i call the the farmer's ethic of uh of what they do and uh and how hard farmers work uh to care for their land and their animals and and really keep their farm running Um, for me uh, we out, we had our crops and you had to sit on tractors and, and such. And, uh, I literally tape a transistor underneath my baseball cap. And I got to listen to Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons and Bill King with the, uh, giants and A's. And that, that just made my day and made my passion for baseball all the more. You know, uh, you end up walking. Oh, oh, by the way, I was supposed to apologize ahead of time for my attire. Our son is playing in uh, the state lacrosse final four today. And so I am donning his uh, our high school, Marymont High School tonight. So I apologize if I look like I uh, just walked out of a bar. Please well, congratulations. Yeah, Thank cross is a great game. Great game. Yeah, it, it's a great game. Um, really hurting baseball here in Ohio. We can talk more about that a little bit later on. But um, – you, know, you you walk on as a baseball player at the University of Pacific. 
uh, you end up in the school's Hall of Fame. You spend four years in the minor leagues as a player. You were an all-star at three different levels in the Cardinals organization. And then a knee injury wrecked uh, your career. How hard was that knowing what could have been, I guess, um, to walk away from the game so young? Um, you know, the uh, I had a... Uh college professor, organic chemistry professor, uh, Dr. Gross, uh, tell me one time, he came out and watched me play and things were going really good for me in college and I was leading the team in hitting and pro teams were uh, interested in me and things were going the way he wanted it to go. And uh, he said to me, um, remember that what you do above the shoulders is going to have a lot more to do with your life than what goes on below. And uh, your biggest asset as an athlete is going to be your mind. And don't forget that. And as you go forward, uh, keep that in mind. And it was valued advice. They sat in a hospital bed after my third knee operation. And uh, I uh, always remember that that advice and, and frankly that direction about taking on and always keeping the mind active and learning and and really that's what took me to law school after my you know baseball career ended well you know it's one thing scott as you know to get advice it's another thing to heed the advice especially if it's good advice you got your doctorate in um, pharmacy a degree there then you go to law school get your law degree 1980 you start a career as a sports agent. Uh, very different world in 1980 than it is right now uh, to be a sports agent. Who or what made you decide that was going to be your career path? You know, I uh, um, George Kissel was a mentor of mine in, in the Cardinal organization. And... Uh, he would, he would always say a couple things to me. He goes, thank God you can hit because it's going to give you enough time to uh, learn how to catch a baseball. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he also said to me, no matter what you do, I could just tell you in your life that baseball is going to be the face of you. And he repeated that two or three times. And I, I, uh, I was hopeful that that meant I was going to stay in the game as a player a good bit and um, but when I was outside of baseball I uh, you know I'd had now 11 12 years of school I had medical legal degrees and and I had a resume and I prepared for these law firm interviews postgraduate in, uh, in law school and in doing so um, I looked at all the companies that each law firm represented most of them were drug corporations or medical associations. And so I went into every interview, I think there was like eight of them, and every interview, all they talked about was baseball. They talked about my baseball career, what we did, uh, all those things. And I, I was astounded. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, got a job offer from, from all the firms. And so when I started my legal career, uh, my teammates kept, ca kept calling me. We were talking about how they thought their approach uh, 
how to get better, really a lot of the psychology of the game that we shared when we played together. And, um, and then one of my senior partners came to me and said, look, I have a family that uh, is, uh, their son is a, a very good baseball player and he's a high draft pick. And he asked, why don't these drafted players have representation? And uh, I want you to do pro bono work and, and help these people. And I said, I'm not sure it quite works that way. Uh, you have to have talent to have leverage in the draft. And, and, but I got the idea that the drafted players, had the bonuses had not changed from 65 with Rick Monday all the way through. This was in 1982. And I went out and picked two players, Tim Belcher and Kurt Stilwell. I said, I'm going to aid these players, both high school and college players, in, um, in the draft. And they ended up being the first and second players chosen. And, uh, and after that, my, my calling was, was about given to me that it wasn't going to be in a medical legal career. It was going to be more in the, in a, in the game I love in baseball. You had players, if people know their names, if they follow the game for a long time, when you first started out. I mean, you mentioned the two amateur players, but you had Manny Trio, I think. You had Bill Caudle, uh, good players, sometimes great players. But is Greg Maddox the guy that put you, quote-unquote, on the map? Without a doubt. Um, uh, Mad Dog was – I watched him pitch in high school, and uh, – he had some unusual bad luck. He had the bases loaded, nobody out, and then he just went in and just, you know, massage the baseball, could really control a fastball, make it run both ways, right and left. Amazing changeup. And, and as a former player, you recognize this, and he was a rather diminutive athlete uh, for pitchers. And we developed a relationship and um, he had a family friend and they didn't hire me originally, but I kept talking with him, going to see him. And then finally he gave me the trust to uh, represent him. And, and then we went through the steps of advising him to turn down as a first multi-year contract offer and the second and the third and, and all the advice proved to be correct as to his assessment of his career. And, um, and then he ended up getting uh, record contracts in both his first and second free agent uh, periods in his career. And, and through Greg's performance and him uh, providing, you know, evidence to players that I knew both the game and, and legally what to do and how to manage the CBA and arbitrations and free agency. It really allowed me the platform of a great talent to, to exercise my skills and, and, and advance my career in, in uh, being a baseball attorney. Well, you know, you, you're the first agent that signed a player to a $50 million long-term deal. That was Maddox. Um, the first guy on a $100 million deal in Kevin Brown. Um, the first guy on a $200 million deal in Alex Rodriguez, uh, and then uh, the 10-year $252 million deal for A-Rod. You've had lots of other guys since. I mean, guys, big stars today, Bryce Harper and Garrett Cole and Anthony Rendon and on and on and on and on. Um, 
Have you become, as the years have gone by, do you spend more time uh, as as the agent for the players and all that entails in that, or a recruiter for amateur players, high school, college players, to keep the business going? Um, to do this correctly, it really takes an army of people to represent players correctly. Um, we have 140 people in our company and, uh, we've got a sports training Institute was headed by Steve Rogers. He was for 15 years with a strength conditioning coach of the white Sox, and, and Steve uh, has done remarkable studies on durability. Uh, the most important thing you can get these athletes to understand is they have to be available and durable and we have to, we know how to train them and what to do. We work with the teams to do that. Um, I have uh, all over the world um, uh, development and scouting people that we certainly are very selective, like we're probably the fifth largest uh, agency in volume, but we're very selective about the players who we choose to represent. Uh, we have a, a draft uh, division, amateur division, where we monitor all the conduct of the players available to the draft, international divisions. Uh, where we really look for those unique talents. Um, all of them are headed by uh, an expertise. In the office uh, to run our business, um, you know, former major leaguer Jeff Musselman runs our office, and Scott Champarino, former major leaguer, runs our draft and development. Mike Fiore, uh, um, who uh, uh, also is a, a tremendous collegiate player and Olympian, runs all of our communication systems with the players. Um, we have a, a probably 35 people that never leave the office. All they do is study the um, statistical data. We create algorithms and analytic theories upon which we base our um, evaluative measures of what to do with the player once they are in the major leagues and, and what that evaluation is like. So it is a, it's a very complex focus on, and we only represent baseball players. That's the other part. We, we really stay close to the industry because when you go to a parent's home, you know, to the home of a parent and you're talking about their son, we want to know that what we do 24 seven is about what their son does. So um, it's very different than the infrastructure of all the other agencies because most of them are part of a, a large entertainment company or they, they may do other things their company pr corporate advancement those kinds of things and they all have sports divisions and represent multiple sports um that is not how i choose to run our business and we want families to know the boris corporation is is really a uh, a one-stop shop for expertise in baseball you know, Scott, you're not always the most popular guy in the room um, when you get together with, uh, you know, uh, some general managers, some team owners, whatever the case might be. Uh, I know that that's not your job, and perhaps that's uh, how you would, would answer this. But, you know, look, I mean, there, there are people always – when you're successful, people are going to take shots at you no matter what you do. Uh, I have always said – we were talking about it before you came on the air today. The question was asked in this room – does anybody in sports do their job better than Scott Boris? 
And I looked at him after asking the question. I'm like, there's no chance there's anybody that does their job better in pro sports than Scott Boris. But it also means that there are a lot of people that don't like Scott Boris. How do you handle that? Well, you know, it's funny, and thank you for that, Tom. I well, I mean that. it. I mean, I look. I, 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 you know, I've said many, many times, Scott. I, uh, I don't even know if you remember this. I told the story on the air yesterday, and we were talking about you coming on. Uh, about when Greg Maddox was still with the Cubs, and I had made some comments on WGN. Uh, and I get back to the hotel that night, and you called my hotel room, and I talked to you on the phone about it. And I thought to myself, you know, that's the kind of guy I wish was my agent, that if somebody had something to say about him that might have any kind of influence, small albeit, uh, on the opinions of other people, um, that, that this guy would go to bat for me that way. And I, and I found it phenomenal and have thought so ever since but 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 back to the question i didn't mean to go off on a tangent no i I think that uh, this has been rather generational when i first started in this it was back when uh general managers were seasoned people in the game and they weren't used to having lawyers walk into their office and say things to them about the value of players and why and and uh, and frankly in that era they were largely unprepared unprepared and their direction towards information was uh, more emotional than it was substantive Um, my job when you're a baseball player it was very easy for me to go in and tell them look um i've been offered jobs to work for teams Uh, I've been offered jobs to manage teams. I've been offered all these things when my, uh, during my playing career, when it ended, um, I took a route where I'm representing players. Uh, Don't think for a minute that my judgments will be assessed, evaluated, but in time, the judgments that we've made were proved to be correct. Uh, and then with that came the respect that we, that what we have to say is of merit. And modernly, we don't, we work with teams and the general managers do not in any way um, um, carry on a, a real adversarial position. Um, there is uh, people that may not say it to you directly, indirectly, and I always say the idea is that I owe you the respect of preparation. I owe you the respect of substantive information. And I also owe you the respect of returning and calls and being on time. And I don't care what role you have in the game. <clears throat> I don't care what your age is. Um, you're in the game and you have a role and we want to respect that role and help you achieve it as we hope you help us achieve ours. But. Early on, after I did my first couple arbitration cases, and I had my labor law professor aid me in the development of the advocacy for those cases, he said to me that if you continue on the path that uh, you're headed here, and we had won our first couple cases, he goes, uh, 95% of what's going to be said about you is going to be negative. However, your players, your clients are going to love you. Learn how to deal with professionally negative commentary 
learn how to understand it and remember that anything that you do to counteract negativity has to be substantively based and it can't be emotionally based and expect people to question what you do, how you do it. Um, expect them to not be on the side of your uh, advocacy for the players, but understand that if you take that approach, um, the like and dislike of a situation will not be relevant. The professionalism of it will be. Um, when you get up every morning and come into the office, and you're a guy who goes to baseball games virtually every night. I mean, uh, you, you're right there watching games. Uh, people come into to Anaheim or come into Dodger Stadium, and you have clients on different teams and so forth. So you're there very late at night. You're coming in, in the morning. Obviously, you're getting up to do this very early in the morning out in California, and we greatly appreciate it. But you have, uh, you know, I, I read an article. You have a staff that, that, and you brought it up earlier, how – uh, they assemble everything that happened the night before for every single one of your clients. How they did at the plate, how they did in the field, whatever it might be. Are, are, is that the first thing you do when you walk in the office, unless you've gotten some urgent phone call from somebody? Are you looking at that data, or, or what are you looking at over the course of the day? The, the best part of this job, Tom, is really helping players be better players. And, um, you know, we have a psychological division which is headed by don karma who's a former major leaguer don was trained by harvey dorfman who uh, i hired and, and harvey was really the first expert you know baseball psychologist that i work with and, and there's so much mental side i'm not a hitting coach we're not a pitching coach we stay out of that realm because you really have to be there with the players on the film to do that on the field to do that and so what we do is we talk about their approach we talk about what they're thinking and what, how they're uh, looking at things. And often um, we have a list where throughout the course of a season, everyone will be on that list, but it's a, it's a, it's a list where the performance of the player is, is not at the level that uh, he hopes it would be. We have those discussions. We work through it. We go historically. We, we really do a lot of things to give them uh, – kind of their most successful moments, uh, talk about those, uh, and, and really aid them in giving them a foundation and, uh, for, um, you know, taking on the game every day, which is so difficult. But I have a, on our database, I have a, a list of every player we represent, major league, minor league. I get an update every half hour on, that, on my phone. Uh, when I come home at nights, I get a complete download of, of all the players' performances we had from the, the day before. You review it, and you talk to those players that normally are, are, are having uh, difficult moments in the game. And, uh, and every once in a while, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be on the phone talking to a player about a remarkable achievement. As Frankly, of late, I've been with Matt McClain <laughs> with, with the Reds, who's, who's had a remarkable start to his career in Cincinnati. He sure has. Uh, it's interesting you bring up McLean because you also uh, became the representative for Jonathan India. Now, look, you, you uh, have, uh, I'm sure, over the last day or two, been a lot of chatter here in town with all these prospects coming up. You mentioned McLean, you've got him. We've heard about Ellie De La Cruz, all these kinds of things. And the potential uh, of India 
who's been an outstanding offensive player. Uh, his defensive metrics have not been very good. Um, that, that there's a possibility with a, with a whole fleet of quote-unquote infielders that the Reds should consider uh, asking India to move to the outfield. How do you feel about things like that? Because you've had other players where this has come up. Well, the subject of defensive metrics are are it's something that may take a whole other conversation, but uh, they're not very real to me. They're they're something that is uh, almost ninety five ninety six percent of what a player does on the field is something about the catch and the throw and the consistency of it. This idea of these range metrics that play a portion of the small percentage of what players do, and that's how we're gonna evaluate an infielder. Um, you know, to, to be a player like Jonathan Indian hit and play on the dirt um, uh, and such is a, is a very rare and valued uh, asset for a major league team. You know, and I, I don't tell teams what to do with players or how to do it. I do know this, that when a player is playing well and doing well, um, you do not interject them without proper training, without um, an appropriate um, period of time to insulate a player. Um, I have a great player in uh, um, Royce Lewis who – um, is a remarkable talent, and he's an infielder, and he's very athletic. And he was put into a situation in the outfield, you know, due to an injury in a game um, in uh, in Minnesota. What happened? He gets hurt. Um, and when you're you're doing unfamiliar things on a major league field, you have to be very very cautious about uh, the level of training and and what you do. You an outfield throw versus an infield throw. Um, you know, utilization of the outfield walls and, and the routes and paths to do it. It's just not something that you uh, do to a player uh, in, in a moment. It takes a great deal of preparation and time to do that. And, and then you go from there. The other thing is the preference of the player. Um, and normally players who are um, certainly all-star level talents at their position um, they understand that that while one organization may have a um, you know a lot of talent at one particular position, uh, other organizations most don't certainly that can play at that level and the hit at that level. So um, I'm sure it's nice to be the Cincinnati Reds and have all the wonderful infielders that they have because few organizations have that, and I think the decisions going forward are more about you know, how they they look at that and what they decide. But I, I certainly can tell you that Jonathan is playing at a high level at second base, and, um, and I'm sure that he certainly wants to continue playing at that position because he's playing it so well and doing so well offensively. You know, I'm kind of curious, Scott, as you, you know as well as I do, that, look, you, you can look at a set of statistics and you can present them in such a way that could prove either side of a debate, right? Um. You know, one of the big debates around here kind of going hand in hand with what you're talking about with, you know, a gluttony of, of really good infielders, young infielders, where are you going to play them? Uh, is somebody willing to move to the outfield? I don't know if you represent – do you represent Jose Barrero? No, I don't. 
Okay, okay. This was more of a theoretical question, but but involves a guy like him. The Reds brought him up very, very young, probably a little too young. Uh, in 2021, he's a number one ranked player in the minor league system, and he has a monster offensive season. He's come up to the big leagues and has really not hit much, although he's not playing regularly much either. Um, in, in fairness to him, but I'm kind of curious. Based on all the data you have, uh, and I could ask a baseball, you know, somebody who's a GM or something, and maybe this number would be different. But, but, but is there a certain amount of time where, you know, you feel like it's fair at bats, plate appearances, whatever it is, innings, uh, to, to, to truly uh, form an opinion on whether you think a guy is a regular major league everyday player? <laughs> You know, Tom, there, there are many varieties of introduction of a player to the major leagues. And, you know, this goes back to the eye test and it goes back to your own personal playing days when you advanced through the levels of the minor leagues and you're playing. The one thing you learn is that the player's psychology when he arrives in the major leagues is that this is a destination that he wants to keep. When you're in the minor leagues, you don't really care where you play. Uh, there's no ownership of it. The psychology of it is completely different because you're playing, the uniform you're playing in, and all those things don't really matter. When you put on a major league uniform for the first time and you're in the big leagues, you now want to keep that uniform. You want to stay in that city. Uh, all those things are interjected in addition to your play. Then you add to that, that you have been a prospect. You've been a player who's played every day, you're everywhere you've been in your life. And all of a sudden you arrive in the big leagues and you're faced with not playing every day. You know, Jonathan India went through this when he first arrived in the major leagues and, and he was in and out of the lineup. And then he got um, a performance level that allowed him psychologically to really start putting at-bats together. And he earned the everyday job and then earned to be the rookie of the year. But if you look at the start of that year to where he came through it, he had to weather those psychological moments of the concern, the newness to all those factors. Now, with each individual player, it may not go to where all of a sudden you're going to grab onto it within a short period of time and then earn that everyday job. Um, and a lot of it, you have to look at individually, but when a player's that young and he hasn't had that six or 700 consecutive plate appearances in the major leagues, um, I am, I look at the information and the performance levels much differently than I would uh, if he were given the everyday job, he didn't have the concerns of going up or down. Um, and he knew that he was established in the major leagues. Then his performance is truer to me. And there's less psychological components that can interfere with it. Um, the, the news came out not too far from you uh, last night that Bally Sports, Diamond Sports, all under the Sinclair umbrella, uh, would not meet its obligation in a contract to pay the San Diego Padres. They say the landscape has changed on and on and on. We've talked a little bit about already this morning. Um, 
I have said for months, Scott, I think this might end up being the single biggest development in sports in this calendar year, 2023, and perhaps into 24. Where do you think all this is going? Is, uh, do you think ultimately this could be a good thing for baseball, or is this trouble for baseball? No, I, I think the financial positioning of one particular company has little to do with the value value of what the rights of the baseball team are, content and all those. This may be a um, a wonderful opportunity for baseball to garner the rights of a team, create their own internal production, uh, stream it, um, collect the resources from it, um, and really build the foundation of success that I think right retention of, of in, in this sport, baseball, uh, can bring. I, I think the model of what we can do with streaming is something that's uh, uh, far beyond what the, the, the cable system offered. Uh, what we can do to generate interest with it, and also how we can uh, really economically weaponize it to be a benefit to teams. So um, I, I think this is a, um, a way where the freedom of, uh, of rights uh, given to the teams and given to the league will illustrate the greater value and purpose of it. We hear so much about big market, small market. Uh, Certain teams, uh, and you know who they are, Reds are one of them. Uh, Although the Reds in past years have spent some money to try and win, they're they're clearly going a different direction. A lot of other teams are going a different direction. Uh, Do do you buy the big market, small, and I don't mean the market size in the city they live in. I'm saying, do you buy at all, and you have an incredibly unique perspective on all this, uh, but for the fan out there, uh, are, are you buying this big market, small market thing and that small market teams can't compete? Well, I would say that in any league, any sports league, you have venues that have different values. <clears throat> if you buy New York, Chicago, L.A., you know, you're going to pay a different value for it than you will you know, Cleveland uh, or um, Cincinnati. And why? Population, market size, all those things. So when you go to put a league together, what do you do to create parity? And what do you do also to reward the owners who are paying five times as much, four times as much for a larger population and media market than those that are entering the league and paying really 20, 25% of that value to enter the league. You certainly can't go in and say that a league in a structure, when you're including all these cities of different size and market valuation, you can't say that they deserve equal treatment. You can't do that. And the reason is the investment is literally four to five times as much for the major markets as it is for uh, the, uh, the smaller cities. So what you have to do is create an equilibrium. 
an equilibrium that allows the rewards of the purchase um, to be uh, arguably brought to light. And then you allow for um, a league component because those teams in the major markets literally have to pay to get competition into their cities to take advantage of their market share and what they do. What is that cost? And there should be a cost. And then the, the cities that are in the smaller markets, they are paying lesser than that amount to bring those teams into their markets because it has lesser value to them. And that equilibrium as to how you figure that out and what you do in leagues is usually going to be that you would expect that there should always be different approaches to um, competitiveness and performance. And by having the freedom for different approaches, and this is why salary caps to me have become something that prevents so many franchises from being intellectually um, and fiscally sound, is that they're, always, they're never going to change because the system doesn't allow for um, intellect to operate. And uh, for example, the uh, one club can go out and have a, a, a rubber band approach, a flex approach, where they're going to go in and say, this is the time that we're going to, you know, double or triple our payroll. And then we have other development times in our franchise history where we're going to limit what we do. So I, I'm not, I fully believe that owners should be able to do what owners want to do. I don't believe in floors or ceilings. I, I believe that the what the unique nature of a franchise should be should be that of what the intellect of the organization should determine uh, in that moment in time. And allowing the freedom of a structure to allow that to happen, I think best serves the league and best serves um, the fans so that they know that their ownership has no restraint and they know that their ownership has no no minimums that they have to meet either. But, but on that salary cap issue, though, Scott, you know, you, I, I think it's fair to say now intellectually or theoretically, you can completely disagree with what I'm about to say. But, you know, the, the, the football model, let's just use them as an example where they have a floor, they have a ceiling uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, a team like the Green Bay Packers with a population of 107,000 people can compete with New York, L.A., Chicago. Why is that a bad thing? Well, football is a different sport. It's an event sport. They only play eight home games. So consequently, their structure is largely around a TV contract. In our game, we have 81 home dates for a major league team. Many of these teams, their structure is around the uh, fans and who they draw to the ballpark and what they do. You know, for example, like, the Oakland Raiders are not a good, or I should say the Las Vegas Raiders are not a particularly good football team, but they make the most money in the NFL. Why? Because people buy their tickets at premiums because when they have that event in Las Vegas, all forms of fans come there from the opposing team to have a, uh, a weekend junket in Las Vegas and watch their home football team play. Therefore, the value of their tickets went extraordinarily up and they're generating massive amounts of income uh, that other teams don't. So in each model, you can find a, 
uh, an exclusionary element of it. But remember, in baseball, you have to fit it to what the league is. We are a uh, um, we're not an event sport. We are a sport where we have 81 games to market and sell in a particular region. And for doing that, we have to look at the game completely differently. But when you talk about restraint and you talk about what one particular club or owner has to do, that you're going to fit into that model by inception. You, you have owners that are paying values that are completely different than the majority of the other owners to buy into the league. And therefore, you have to accommodate that in the structure of the league to, for it to be competitive. You know, we've got Tampa Bay, who has a completely different model than, um, you know, the New York Yankees. But on the other side of it is Tampa Bay builds a player. They come in and they say, look, after four or five years service, um, this player is not affordable to me. Who's going to buy that player? Who's going to trade for it? Well, the answer is we want to have portals for that so that that team can get, has someone to sell that player to. And in return, they get their prospects to re-engage. So this quid pro quo actually exists where if you had a salary cap, that team couldn't move that player. That team wouldn't have a portal to allow for it to restructure in its own dimension in the ways that they do things. So free agency uh, and uh, valuations and having flexibility in some teams can pay more for a payroll than others actually creates uh, more of a dimension for winning in different ways, using your intellect in different ways. And it also allows you to to uh, have a flow in the league that creates different spheres of, of opportunity, different spheres of competitive approach to allow for um, essentially different ways of winning, which I think makes the league vastly more interesting. Would you be in favor of every player being a free agent at the end of every year? No. No, I think there has to be um, there has to be standards in sport. You don't want to go out and project players on the basis of, of subjective potentials. You want to see exhibited performance. And in baseball, we have a system where few, if any, players reach free agency after six years. I mean, it's maybe an 8% level. You've got to perform. You have to perform year after year. And before you give a player a contract of years and value, you want to be certain that you understand the player, the player understands himself, the player is filtered into a dynamic where you know all aspects of him. Um, and I know my, my trust in the game and what we want to do, I want to know that about the people that I work for too. And I want them to know it. And I want them to have an established uh, criteria for performance that I can be an advocate for, not just uh, one year. And I think our game would be in, in very difficult shape because of the fact that we need to have a volume of performance, uh, arguably four or five years minimum, to really look at 
who, what the constitution of a player, what his performance levels are. And then we have great criteria upon which to uh, make major investments in that player. Uh, but certainly if you made every player a free agent, you would disrupt fan bases. You would create assessments that would be based upon very, very limited information. And I don't think that you would want to uh, uh, run a league in that manner. Well, Scott, you've been so generous with your time so early in the morning. Uh, there, there are a thousand things I, I, I'd like to ask you about, but maybe we'll do it another day. I just can't thank you enough for your time this morning and for joining us here on Off the Bench. Thank you. Scott Boris, kind enough to join us uh, very early in the morning out in Southern California. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.